Let me just uh, bring a word of um, invitation to uh, those of you who are here today. And um, as you know, there are some in our church who do not have um, family in the area. And sometimes it's nice to be sure to include them uh, in holiday traditions like a Thanksgiving meal. So if you, your family has room at your table to include another person from our church, and we'd like to see if we could uh, arrange to um, make that happen for some, just let me know. Uh, my email address is on the bulletin. You can contact me afterwards. We want to make sure no one is uh, excluded and left out. We want to make sure they're part of our family and to share those kinds of times together. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, truly we are blessed to be included in your family is an incredible privilege and blessing, a blessing that continues to bestow benefits throughout our lifetime. And in this life, Lord, we're still awaiting that day of the final culmination when all of your family will be gathered together at that feast, the feast of the Lamb. And we thank you, Lord, that um, the hope we have is to be with Christ and to celebrate what he has done for us, to see faith finally become fully unfolded before us. That which we've always longed for and hoped for will someday be um, uh, given to us in fullness, fullness of joy. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you would build our faith during this time. We pray that you would open the eyes of those who have never experienced or actually had saving faith. We pray that through your word, through the clear explanation of your uh, revelation, that we might all know the joy of seeing you with eyes of faith and appreciating you and coming to see you as the one who is the greatest and most satisfying one of all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever gone to Geneva, Switzerland? Uh, probably not somewhere that you would go on your way to somewhere else, but if you ever have a chance to travel in Europe, uh, there is a very lovely park on the campus of the university that John Calvin founded, and uh, there is a long wall that has been built. It's 100 yards long, about 10 feet high. So imagine looking at this large, massive stone wall, and at the center of it are four statues recognizing the contribution of those made during the Reformation. Uh, people included, uh, the four statues are Beza and Calvin and uh, Farrell and Knox. And in the middle of this large stone wall, recognizing the anniversary of the Reformation, which in our year is, is 500 years, when this was built, I think it was 400 years ago, they have a phrase in Latin, and the phrase means, after darkness, light. What a wonderful summary of what took place as a result of the Reformation. There was a time of darkness, theological darkness. There was a time in which, um, over many, many centuries, the light of the gospel had been dimmed because of tradition that had grown up around it and dimmed the light and brilliant glories of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to mention corruption, which had also dimmed it and uh, almost destroyed it. 
And the reformers then took this light of the gospel and said, let's make sure it's seen widely. Let's make sure people understand and appreciate the glories of the gospel as revealed in the scriptures. And that's what we're thinking about during these days as we now think of 500 years ago, the huge impact this has made and the blessing that we've received from it. We've started a sermon series. We're in uh, number three today, a sermon series that summarizes the biblical um, themes and the biblical message of the gospel that was rediscovered during the Reformation period. And that involves five short, pithy phrases, each one having in it the word alone. And so we started off two weeks ago, scriptures alone. And last week, grace alone. Today is faith alone. Next week is Christ alone. And ultimately, the last week we'll do, uh, Lord willing, uh, to God alone be the glory. It is in these uh, essential truths that are boiling down what was rediscovered and reproclaimed in a wonderful and life-changing fashion. And now today, this morning, we're looking at this doctrine of what we call the justification, it's a big fancy word, the justification of faith alone. Now this is not just some peripheral concern, this is really a cornerstone of the church. Because in Latin, the idea of faith alone, or sola, sola fide, faith alone, it is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Now that's in your notes. That's the article upon which the church stands or falls. As a matter of fact, if we get this doctrine wrong, then we really have no good news to share. And so it's, very, it's vitally important. And the message that the Roman church proclaimed in the 16th century, and they then subsequently followed up and they defended what they had been proclaiming for all these centuries at the Council of Trent, is really a, a modified gospel message. The message of Rome and the message of the Reformers are two different gospels. You, just, you have to understand that. And that helps us understand why many people ask us, well, what's the big deal? What's the big split that happened between these two groups? Well, if you understand that they have two different gospels being preached, it helps us understand why the Reformers protested, hence the word Protestant, away from and protested what was being proclaimed by the Roman church because they had great courage and great conviction to stand with what the scriptures were teaching. And so we want to look this morning now and reconsider the church's, here's my outline, the, the Roman church's distorted gospel. That's the first point. The second point is we're going to look at the delightful gospel of the reformers, that which they rediscovered in the scriptures. And lastly, we're going to look at the demonstrated gospel. And we explain what that means in just a second. But first of all, we want to look at the distorted gospel, which basically you sum it all down. It says, faith plus something more equals justification, to be justified, to be cleared right with God. Now, when you read the Bible, and if you have read anywhere close to what was read for us by Keith there earlier in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, you come away understanding that the Bible is very clear. Number one, God is holy, God is just, and those whom God has made, that includes you and me and everyone else, all of us, are people who have broken His laws. 
And since God doesn't grade on the curve, everyone who breaks his laws will one day stand before God and we will give account of ourselves to God. And all of us obviously are in desperate need of righteousness. Now, what do we mean by righteousness? And here I'd like to uh, allude to some comments I thought were quite helpful from Tim Keller's book on the book of Romans, a summary, a very easy, very accessible uh, Bible commentary, if you ever like pick that up. He says, righteousness is really a validating performance record. A validating performance record. It's, it's, it's something that you have as a validating record that opens a door for you, gives you an opportunity to move and be accepted into something that you're hoping to be involved in. For example, when you go job hunting, what is it that you do? You prepare a resume, right? The resume is your record, a validating record of your performance. So you list your education, you list your life experiences, you list some references, and what you're doing is you're saying, listen, this contains all the listing of all my experiences, all my skills, and I'm going to present you and tell you I am worthy of the job that is now available and you're offering. And this position, I have uh, everything it takes to do that insofar as there's nothing that disqualifies me from taking this job. And therefore, I'm a person who has everything that need, and I qualify in a sense for everything needed in the job. And since I have righteousness and it comes to your job. Now, the problem in this area, of course, that's a normal thing. We always understand that. The problem comes if that kind of mentality and practice slips over into the realm of our religion and your religious practices and thoughts and beliefs. Because many people in our culture today rely on the same system of relating to God as they would seeking a job from their employer, a future employer. Instead of having a vocational record we present to God, we would come to God and present to Him, many people in religion would say, we give Him our moral or our spiritual record. And we essentially say, listen, if I'm good enough, if I'm worthy, then we think, according to various forms of religious teaching, somehow we'll be accepted by God. But Christianity stands far apart from all of that system. This is what's so critically important to understand this portion of Romans. Christianity says that we are accepted by God in a radically different way because instead of developing our own record of righteousness in which we present to God, okay, here's the list of all my qualifications. God himself presents to us a perfect record. And it comes to us through the simple response of faith in trusting in Jesus Christ. You say, where are you getting all this? Romans chapter 3, he says in verse 21, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, this is the righteousness of God that he's going to give to us, has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith, there it is, faith in Jesus Christ, to all who do what? Believe. To all who believe. And you say, well, don't I owe God something else if I'm going to have this righteousness? No. As you keep reading verse 24, being justified as a gift, a free gift by His grace. What a radically different understanding of Christianity that from all the other forms of religion. And this is the sad part, is because the Roman church over the centuries 
at the time of the Reformation, had developed this complicated system, complicated. In order to address this fundamental need, it came up with a system called, another fancy word, sacerdotalism, just hear it this way. It's a system that said, basically, if you're going to gain this right standing before God, your own righteousness with God, you as a person must participate in this system. It's a special system that requires a special priest, and this special priest is, is, is supposed to impart to you some sort of grace that he will give you as you participate through this system, and it can only be done through the church's sacraments. So each person then was required to cooperate with that particular sacrament, whether it's baptism or penance or uh, marriage, whatever. And through that, then they would, justification would then become sort of like a process. It happens over the period of your lifetime, beginning at the beginning of your life, the church would say, Roman church said, which you first then are required to be baptized. So that's why they baptize all their infants. And they would say at that point, you receive this grace, you receive a status of righteousness before God, and now in order to keep it there, you must go through this system to ensure that it stays in this kind of right standing with God. The problem is, with this system, is that the grace that you receive that's infused into you through baptism and through the sacraments, it is not something that is immutable. In other words, it doesn't, it changes it, it doesn't last. It can increase. It can decrease. And so the Roman church insisted the way to be restored to the status of being righteous throughout your lifetime is through the sacrament of penance. Now, are you getting lost through this? I mean, it gets complicated, and I'm just giving you a very brief summary of it. If you boil it all down, I think essentially Rome taught that a person can have saving faith without justification. The bottom line, and here in your notes is a very important sentence here, faith by itself, according to Rome, is not a sufficient condition in and of itself to result in justification. Now, a reformer like Luther hears that news and understands the system pretty well, and he finds himself miserable in that system. Luther is a monk, a devoted monk in the system there. He is a dedicated monk. He is earnestly trying to overcome what is to him this overwhelming sense of guilt that he experienced over and over and over for weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years of his life. Because the more and more he read the Bible, the more he realized, man, I have failed in that area. I failed in that area. Oh, wow, failed in that area. That's all he could see. So he had entered the monastery. He's earnestly devoted himself to all sorts of religious training. Listen to the kind of things he would do. He observed numerous fasts. How many of us can say we've ever done that in our life? Numerous fasts. He offered countless prayers. He frequently went without sleep. He endured bone-chilling uh, cold with no blanket. He flagellated himself, sort of whacking himself with, with uh, various straps, self-punishment. He confessed his sins, not just occasionally, but repeatedly and endlessly and exhaustively. He would, he would confess his sins for an hour or two hours, go back, and then come right back and say, oh, I forgot one. I have another sin to confess. 
he viewed all of that confession really as lacking because he said really it's done from a heart that's not really pure because I do it because I'm I'm trying to save my own skin. So his soul lacked peace in this system that was in place at the time and still is being followed. He didn't enjoy God. He began to resent God because it would seem like impossible to ever be right with him. He knew that his own righteousness gained by faith through baptism was not fully sufficient. So when you boil it all down, a distorted gospel, the gospel that came through the Roman church, says that you must trust Christ and try harder. Trust Christ and try harder. This approach places a lot of weight, not only on faith, your own faith, but also on the need to improve yourself. I wonder how many of us, whether we are consciously aware of it, we relate to God like that. Like a yo-yo. How many of you have ever done a yo-yo? I forgot to bring my yo-yo with me, but uh, you know, you, you throw it down. If it's the fancy kind, it'll spin for a while, and then you pull it, and it comes right back up. It's up and down, up and down. That's the life of a yo-yo. And sometimes for many of us, we relate to God like that kind of a yo-yo. There are times in our life when our spiritual performance record is better than other times in our life, and we sort of assume to ourselves, well, surely we have hope that God is smiling on us now. Look at my record. Look how well I've been doing. There are other times when we, our moral performance record is more like a C- minus or maybe a D plus or even a D. And you keep assuming that you need to find acceptance before God by trying harder. And so we invest all of our efforts in more vigorously in these different pursuits like I need to do better at my job. I need to do better in terms of my, my looks and appearance. I need to have better academic performance in the classroom. I need to have better status and people need to look up to me more and I need to have a perfect family in order to somehow feel like I've made things right between me and God. So we have many ways we've been left wondering whether we've ever done enough. My friend, if you're caught in that kind of system, and many people are in the Roman church even today, it's an endless pursuit. It will never give you peace with God. Never. This approach is guaranteed to leave you disheartened and discouraged. It will leave you weary and worn out. And you'll have the feeling and the uneasy thought that someday you are going to have to stand before God. That's not a very exciting prospect for you because you're wondering, have I done enough? And the bottom line is, if that is your view of, a, of, the, of the distorted gospel, is it leaves you with a diminished view of Christ. Where is Christ in that picture? He is pushed to the outward extremes. He's not in the picture. You are in the picture primarily. And faith in Christ has somehow been lessened in its value. And that's why I want to focus secondly on this delightful gospel. My friend, if you're hearing me talk to you and you feel like that's where you're feeling you're caught, listen to this wonderful news, the delightful gospel of being justified by faith alone. If you have your Bible open, look at chapter 4 of Romans and I have taken the time, as I've read through this chapter, to underline 
a repeated phrase, a repeated word. And if you ever come to a passage of Scripture where you see a repeated word that is there over and over and over again, you might want to do the same because obviously that's the theme, that's something that's being emphasized in the text. Here we have Paul asking the question, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was, and here's the first one I've underlined, reckoned. Reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor as to what is due but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account or reckon. In this blessing, then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also, for we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. What the Reformers are discovering as they read this passage of Scripture in the original language, which was at the time made available to them in Greek, they began to notice this interesting phrase, the idea of being reckoned, to be justified. And they found out that the word justified itself means to be declared right with God. It's a legal term. It's from a courtroom setting. And so they realized that what the scriptures are saying here in Romans 3 and 4 and 5, talking about the idea of being justified, is that it's not talking about a process. It's talking about a declaration that God makes. The judge, God the judge says, you are declared right. It's something that happens once. It's not a process. And that rather when a person who has uh, saving faith, when that happens and their faith is transferred to Christ and they're trusting in Christ and what he's done, they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. No process thought of involved here at all. The person is declared just on the basis of Christ and his righteousness. Notice look, it says there, verse 5 of Romans 4, very important. Again, if you underline your Bible, if you highlight in your tablet. Here's a great thing to underline and, and notice. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Ungodly. This means that God justifies people who are not just in a just condition. It means that they are not perfect in who they are but God declares them as if they are right with him. God graciously provides to those who are unjust a righteousness outside of ourselves, the righteousness of Christ, which is what Romans 3.21 teaches. And the Reformers, for good reason, made a big deal over this concept of imputation. I know I'm bringing lots of big words here to you today, but these are key words that came out of this understanding of discovering what God teaches in the Word. It's a word, the idea of imputation. God imputes our sins, that is, He credits them, He transfers the, uh, the, the, um, the, the credit of 
what's on our record, which is all sin and all debt we owe, that's transferred to Christ so that he takes on our debt and paid for that on the cross. And then Christ has all this valuable obedience and his own righteousness as a positive side. That's transferred to our account on this side. And we now have the righteousness of Christ put onto our account, imputed there, given to us as a gift. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not something we had of ourselves. What an amazing concept to rediscover. You notice here that the idea of verse um, 3 in Romans chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 4 and 5 and 6 and 9 and 10, 11 and 22 and 23 and 24, all contain this word reckoned, this word credited, again, coming from the accounting world. And the gospel basically says that God declares us not guilty by crediting our sin onto Christ's account. Think about that for a minute. All the obligation of things that you've done wrong fall onto Christ's account. And Christ paid for that, all that debt, when he died on the cross. And God then declares everyone who believes in Christ to be righteous by crediting Jesus' righteousness onto our account. Now I want you to listen. When Luther finally understood this, in the scriptures, not through what he, the church was saying at the time, through what the scriptures were saying, it blew his socks off. It rocked his world. And I've given you a quote that I'm going to read in just a second, but before I do so, I want you to notice here, Luther discovered, again, particularly verse 5 there, talking about the ungodly who are declared uh, right with God. He said, it's possible to be an imperfect, sinful Christian and still be declared right with God. And so he came up a little phrase, Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. At the same time, we are just and a sinner. At the same time. My friend, that is just incredibly powerful, wonderful news. Here's how Luther responded to it. And see if this resonates with your heart. Have you ever had this kind of reaction to this truth? Luther says this, that this is that mystery. The idea that we could be, uh, Christ's rights could be reckoned to us by faith. This is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. Learn Christ and him crucified. Now turn your page over and you'll read. Learn to pray to him and despairing of yourself say, You, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. But I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and have given to me what is yours. You have taken upon yourself what was not and have given to me what I was not. That's good news, my friend. He caught it. He understood it. He experienced the joy of true saving faith. 
Now, whatever we do, whatever you may be doing, is going to add nothing to the ground of your justification. God doesn't wait for us to do a bunch of good works or perform well or to stop messing up in our life in whatever area we tend to mess up in as a requirement to be declared right with God. You hear that? We must rely completely and only on Christ. And all who transfer their trust to Christ are promised what? Romans 5.1. They are promised right now peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, not someday we will enjoy, but we have it right now. Peace with God. And those who are joined to Christ by saving faith, they're clothed by His righteousness. They need not be destroyed by another person's criticisms. If somebody criticizes you and finds fault in you, that doesn't change your standing before Christ if you're trusting in Him and Him alone. And we need no longer be our own Savior. We, don't, we need no longer trust in our own moral character. We don't need to trust in our performance in the areas of my parenting or in the areas of my performance in my job or my performance as a student. These are not the areas you're ever going to find yourself justified to justify your existence. It's not going to find it. You're not going to find it there. We need to embrace our helplessness and say and confess, acknowledge that being justified by faith is the only means by which we find the right way to deal with other people and even ourselves. You say, what do you mean other people? Well, if I understand that Christ, my sins have been imputed to Him and his, the wealth of His righteousness has been given over to me, then when someone offends me and someone has their debt of, of, of offense has come over and they're beginning to take from mine and I have to say, well, since my debt was so great and Christ forgave it, then I can therefore draw from that amazing, gracious treatment and I can extend forgiveness to that person as well. That's what Matthew 18 teaches so clearly. So the question comes to us this morning, are you a person that doubts God's love for you? Do you find yourself worn out, attempting to somehow earn God's love, earning His approval, earning His acceptance by trying to do things that make you worthy of His acceptance and love? My friend, the delightful gospel is good news. Gaining a right relationship with God is not about earning robes of respectability before God. It's, it's about relinquishing all of our attempts to earn our own righteousness and to rely on Christ alone. To wear His robes of righteousness that have been received by faith alone. I wonder, has the delightful gospel ever changed and gripped your heart like it did Luther? Listen to what he says here. Again, I think this is in your notes. He says, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement there in Romans chapter 3, the just, Romans chapter 1, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn. 
and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. Has that ever happened in your heart? Has the gospel of what you've received in Christ become inexpressibly sweet, that Jesus is inexpressibly sweet to you? This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. Do you see that? Is that your view of God? That you see Him as overflowing in love toward you because of Christ? He says, this is to behold, this it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart, in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks on him only as a curtain, as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. My friend, the gospel is delightful when we understand it as the biblical true gospel to be received by faith. Have you received it by faith? Is it that which affects you and your relationship with God moment by moment, enjoying and delighting in God as He delights in you because of Christ? No wonder the reformers were so determined not to bend and not to fudge on this. This is good news in its pure form. And lastly, I want to just clarify something, because if we just stop here, there are some who are going to say, are you telling me that I could just then somehow say I trust in Jesus to deal with all of my mess in my life, and then I'll just live like I want to, live like the devil, and it doesn't make any difference? No, no. That's why point number three is that it's a demonstrated gospel. It's not only a delightful gospel, a demonstrated gospel. And by that I mean... That when we understand sola fide, the idea of being justified by faith alone, the Reformers went on to say that the imputation of Christ, if you think that, that of it being, having His righteousness imputed to you and your sins imputed to Him, that somehow nullifies any expectation of holy living, then let me share another quote with you that Luther also carefully made known. In your notes, we said, Luther said, We are justified by faith, alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That's important. Because the Reformers understood that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is always accompanied by genuine, true, heartfelt repentance. And that they understood that the heart sorrows for sin and delights in the gospel and therefore doesn't want to go back into living a life that would dishonor the Savior who died for the one who is saved. True saving faith always bears the outward fruit of repentance and godliness. You say, where'd you get that? Well, look on the back of your bulletin. A memory verse for us this particular month is one, and I hope it's familiar to you. I always get tongue-tied because of the translation issues, and I learned it in different translations, but Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Let's say it together. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where's that found? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Now what's that saying? It's saying that a mere profession of faith, of just saying, oh yes, I trust in Jesus, but there's no desire to want to live a life that pleases Jesus, who saved you by his death on the cross and resurrection of the dead, would indicate that perhaps that's merely only a profession of faith. And so James says it is God's will, God's intent that you live a life of good works once you have come to Christ by faith alone, not by works. So James chapter 2 affirms the same thing. James said if you're just professing you're a follower of Jesus and that you are trusting in Him, but there's no evidence of, of that faith and how you live your life, James says perhaps that's dead faith. And so he argues and urges us to make sure there's a fruit that accompanies true faith. Now what do we learn here from this text? All I'm saying is that if you've ever lived a life in which you sense you don't really understand the gospel, you don't understand what Christ has done, surely there is a what? There's a long period of darkness in a life that doesn't understand the gospel or you grew up listening to a distorted gospel. But my friend, we are talking about and delighting in today the light of the true gospel that in Christ, by faith alone, there is forgiveness, there is life, there is love, there is new life in Christ. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here today, we do so knowing that all of us and all of our feeble attempts, Lord, aren't worth anything to you. We have nothing to offer you but our sin. And I pray for anyone who's here today, Lord, that you would help them to be willing to bring and lay their sin before you and to trust Christ, to honor His Word of making this exchange. That as we give you our sin and trust what you, Lord Jesus, have done for us on that cross in love for us, and that you've promised us as we cast ourselves upon you and trust in what you've done, you will then extend to us, impute to us, your righteousness. Lord, what a great exchange that is unfathomable, unfathomably great. And I pray that you would help our hearts, Lord, to be impacted by that truth in a way that gives us boldness to keep making known the good news of the delightful gospel. Give us, Lord, a passion to rely on Christ and not to get into a fog of self-saving efforts. Help us, Lord, to be full of joy and delight in Christ and to celebrate the status that we are afforded because of Him. Lord, help us to remember it's not the strength of our faith, it's the object of our faith that makes all the difference. And so, Lord, would You work mightily in and through us and bring a bright and glorious light of gospel impact into our lives and the lives of those around us. For the glory of Your name we pray. Amen.